Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode uh, 27, uh, talking about insurgency. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my colleague from the Strategy, Depo Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College, Dr. Colby Hansen. Colby, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Colby was uh, just my, uh, my teaching partner this last semester, and he is a political scientist and he has done uh, field work in insurgencies and with armed groups, um, specifically in, in Sri Lanka and parts of India. So you might say a, a South Asian uh, insurgency expert, we'll call him. And, um, and this, uh, this relates to our course in the sense we, we talk a lot about armed groups. We talk a lot about Maoist insurgencies. We study... Uh, Mao and Mao's three phases and also other groups that have then taken this same playbook and, and, and used it. Um, specifically, this last semester, we just talked about things like Kashmir and, um, and, uh, and the insurgency there. Um, uh, Colby, as a, as a uh, person who has done studies in the same regional area, what, um, what it kind of have your, your takeaways have you found in terms of insurgent groups um, around these areas? So one of the things that's really striking about South Asia in general is just how many insurgencies there are around the subcontinent. Um, so, you know, we've, we hear a lot about uh, groups in Kashmir. We hear a lot of about, uh, you know, the Taliban and other uh, Pashtun uh, militias in, in, in the Northwest of, of Pakistan. But if you look over South Asia, there's just tons of, of uh, armed groups that get a lot, a lot less play. So, in India alone, there were there was a big Sikh separatist movement in Punjab uh, in the 70s and 80s in particular, but it's been long running. There are lots, there are 10 different ethnic separatist movements in Northeast India, which is where I've done much of my field work. Um, if you look at uh, those same ethno-linguistic insurgencies, you have very similar insurgencies in Myanmar and uh, in Bangladesh in the hills there. Uh, you've got in Pakistan, you obviously have the, the Taliban and other groups in the Northwest, but you also have the uh, uh, separatist movement in Balochistan. You also have the, the MQM and some other uh, ethnic militias of various kinds. Sri Lanka, you famously had the, the Tamil civil war. You also have a, a leftist group called the JVP that had an insurgency in the, in the early 70s. Um, and then you have a lot of Maoist groups in, in India, in Nepal, uh, famously the, the civil war, they essentially won the civil war there uh, in, in uh, the mid 2000s. Um, and yeah, Bangladesh has a, a Maoist group as well. Uh, it's, it's, there are just a lot of, of armed groups and pretty substantial ones in politics, and they don't always necessarily uh, have the most intense conflicts. They don't necessarily run at sort of the the high temperature and the high sort of stakes uh, for the for the country as as the 
Kashmiri insurgency, but they can be very important uh, in politics. Most of these groups come from the same places that uh, that the insurgency in Kashmir comes from, uh, which is South Asia was a very complex, multi-ethnic, multilingual empire, uh, and it the breakup was very messy when the British left in, in 47. And so you had a lot of areas that sort of, it was unclear what states would sort of inherit them. Uh, so Northeast India in particular, you had all these, uh, you have all these ethno-linguistic insurgencies because you had places that were basically self-governing and didn't see themselves as Indian, that India sort of inherited. Uh, you also had places where you had um, certain groups were, were sort of favored, certain ethnic groups were sort of favored by the, by the British colonial system. Uh, and when independence happened, those groups were sort of pushed out of power and you had tussling over power. That's famously what happens in, in Sri Lanka between Tamils and Sinhalese groups. Um, and then you have all the, this uh, income inequality, land inequality, which, which has fueled the, the Maoist movements throughout South Asia. So there's just this incredible variety from, from a research perspective. It's really useful to sort of look across all of these different groups, see how governments are dealing with them, uh, see their different approaches and, and what can work. Um, so let me ask you this, Colby. So for in, in, in the course, we spend both, both our, our different classes. We spend a lot of time um, reading Mao and Ra yeah. Mao's theories, uh, you know, uh, three-phase insurgency approach, building base areas, and then slowly yeah. growing your cadre, and um, eventually getting to the point where you're strong enough to have this um, uh, this large conventional military that can overthrow the government. Um, you know, generally speaking, what would you say in terms of the groups you studied? How closely are they following a Maoist playbook, and how much are they kind of like you know going off on their own? Uh, adaptation. Yeah, so I'd say the basic framework is pretty similar to those being followed elsewhere. The question is whether they escalate to that third phase in particular, or whether they sort of stay in phase one and phase two of sort of building up a movement, doing small attacks, but not sort of escalating to really conventional uh, conventional warfare. So the the one big exception to that is in Sri Lanka. So the the Tamil Tigers are famous, you know, one of the most famous insurgencies in the world. They started fighting, you know, full-scale civil war in the 80s, and 83 was the sort of uh, uh, set off of the war, uh, all the way through the, the late 2000s. Um, that is a case where there pretty clearly was, and in fact, the leaders of the Tamil Tigers were pretty verbal about the fact that they were sort of... Uh, following the Mao three-phase playbook, that the 80s looked a lot like phase one. They were mostly building up. They were sort of securing local areas, but they weren't trying to engage a whole lot aside from sort of hit, hit and run attacks on, on government. They escalated in the 90s to something that looks more like phase two, where they're sort of combining more conventional, you know, limited conventional attacks with much more harassment in other areas, right? So they, they're sort of, depending on the, the region, they're sort of doing both insurgency and conventional warfare at the same time, they then sign a ceasefire for uh, that lasts between, depending on how you sort of measure lasting of a ceasefire, something, it starts in, in early 2002 and goes through about 2005, 2006. At that point, they go back to war with the government and they are trying to conduct full-scale conventional phase three. And 
the the leader Prabhakaran is very open about the fact that he's trying to to escalate into state, phase three. The problem with phase three is that if you're not careful, you can risk it all on a conventional campaign that's doomed. And what ends up happening is they get caught on a, a, a small isthmus uh, on between the lake and the ocean, and they uh, they get captured and near you know the the leadership of the of the tigers gets basically eliminated or captured person, you know, down to the person, uh, the, the rank and file scatters. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they bet big on phase three and they failed other places in South Asia. You know, I, I mentioned there are a lot of Maoist groups, but even the groups that aren't Maoist, like the Tamil tigers are sort of following much of the playbook, right? The, the sort of phase one and phase two look very similar in terms of how they're using the population in terms of, uh, what kinds of, attack profile they need to to sort of put into place in order to sort of carve out an area for themselves to operate and then to influence uh, influence decision making but the reality is most of them aren't strong enough to sort of escalate it's only in the case of the tigers where you get a group that's strong enough and the government is comparatively uh vulnerable enough where you actually get the the rebels actually think they have a chance of sort of conventional overthrow or uh you know fully carving off a separate state most of what you get is is this phase one phase two kinds of insurgency so um so in the in the course uh, as you well know we talk a lot about if if these are the things that allow an insurgency to go from phase one to phase two to the two to three then the counterinsurgency has to do things like deal with the legitimate grievances of the population to stop them from joining the insurgency, try to isolate the, the area so that, um, you know, a big friend, an ally can't supply the insurgency so it can't thrive um, and, and, you know, uh, limit their, their diplomacy and delegitimize them. And we, we talk about a lot of these kind of things to kind of deal with the insurgency. Is that what happened to the Tamil Tigers in the, in the case of Sri Lanka and some of the other insurgencies around South Asia? Uh, so in the Tigers case, that is sort of unique in the sense that they were defeated full scale on the battlefield. Um, there was a lot of build up to that. And the government did do a lot of things during during the ceasefire in particular to sort of try to address uh, local development, at least. Uh, the, there weren't major, any major political concessions, uh, but there was a fair amount of sort of trying to deal with with underdevelopment in the north of Sri Lanka, where the, the uh, Tamils are majority, um, and to sort of divide the the movement a little bit, other a few other things like that. What's really striking, though, about South Asia in general is that we often think of, especially when we talk about now you know, you defeat an insurgency by essentially robbing it of its its strength and or defeating it, right? And what's striking about South Asia is you get all of this, you know, I talked about there's this huge variety of cases, not all of which are being treated as sort of existential threats by governments. So in, you know, there's, there's Kashmir and there's the Tamil Tigers. And then there's a lot of cases where the government is sort of treating uh, militants as either sort of containable threats uh, or as sort of nuisances that they can work with, uh, sign small sorts of ceasefires, sort of allow them to operate within certain spaces, but prevent them from operating in others. There's this incredible actual variety of, of different relationships that look more like, you know, our, our experience in Iraq, uh, for example, is a sort of uh, a good comparison for this, right? So 
yes, there are uh, certain militias and uh, rebel groups in Iraq that were treated as sort of existential threats like AQI, like ISIS, but there were also lots of local warlords that were sort of partners at certain times or, you know, sometimes treated as threats, sometimes treated as partners, sometimes treated as sort of nuisances that we have to work around. Um, and then there's, you know, in Kurdistan, that's even more obvious, right? This, these are almost, these are sometimes explicit allies. South Asia has that kind of variety to it. So the areas where I have worked in Northeast India um, are really striking in that the government has, has actually signed long-term ceasefires with these groups, not sort of, we're going to ally against a, a bigger enemy, not um, we're going to give you independence, but sort of you stay there. We're going to allow you to function, keep, uh, keep recruiting people, keep sort of operating your base, uh, keeps at times maybe taxing the population under the table, maybe even threatening local political leaders under the table. Um, but as long as you don't attack government forces. And so that's in some, for some armed groups, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. That, that allows them to do a lot of the sort of low level political work and, um, and uh, you know, continue operating the organization in relative safety, um, but not sort of, uh, you know, overthrow the government or try to sort of carve off a fully independent state. Um, that's, you know, that sounds very unusual or that sounds very uh, counterintuitive, but that's most armed groups most of the time is there's sort of, uh, armed groups exist in this sort of uh, gray space between open war and open peace with the government. Uh, and that's that's sort of, we, uh, the reason we talk about the sort of uh, counterinsurgency in the sense of, you know, how do you defeat an armed organization is because we spend so much of our time thinking about those groups that really are viewed as existential threats to the government, the, your ISIS and your AQI and your uh, Kashmir in the case of India. Um, that that's really not, you know, the, in South Asia, the other great example of this is the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban and the Pakistani government, right? They don't view them as an existential threat to the, the state. And so they're able to sort of work with them in certain, in certain ways, even if they don't view them as straight out allies or arms of the state, they can be useful, uh, either nuisances or sort of uh, useful partners in certain, certain contexts. Do, do you think some of that perhaps has to do too with level of violence. And, and what I mean is like the, you know, when we talk about Iraq or Afghanistan, constant, you know, suicide bomber attacks or yeah. IEDs on government and, and um, uh, allied forces versus it sounds like at certain times, other armed groups in, in South Asia are just kind of a live and let live type thing, yeah. you know, because <laughs> taxing a population and placing IEDs on when where government patrols are, are two different levels of, uh, yeah. know, levels of insurgency. Yeah, incidentally, live and let live is the name of an article I wrote about these kinds of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question of what constitutes a sort of existentially threatening group and why does the government treat these groups so differently? Um, there, there's certainly an element of, uh, there are certainly groups that would view any kind of cooperation with the government as impossible, right? So there's, there's basically no question that ISIS is an existential threat to the, the Iraqi state in the, in the mid to 2010s, just like Kashmir, there's an argument that basically that is, uh, 
that is existentially threatening. That's what constitutes an existential threat, though, is somewhat in the eye of the beholder of the government, right? So it's not, for example, necessarily about strength. Um, so the, the groups I've studied in Northeast India, the strongest of those groups are five or 10,000 soldiers strong. These are not small organizations. They're not rinky-dink uh, militias. They're comparable in size to the groups in Kashmir. Um, it's also, you know, it, it's definitely true that groups that are separatist, um, it's a lot easier for them to reconcile with the state, right? If, if an armed group just wants separatism for a particular ethnic community, especially if it's really far from the state, the groups in Northeast India and in Nagaland in particular, it's way up in the hills. The government has basically no economic or political interests there. They're happy to sort of live and let live with that group uh, if it's just cordoned to the area that's, that's uh, ethnically uh, Naga majority. And so it's, it's sort of far from everything. Um, that being said, though, what constitutes a sort of existential threat, as I said, is in the eye of the, eye of the beholder. So there's a great book, recent book by Paul Staneland, who's a political scientist at the University of Chicago, uh, who looks at South Asia in particular. And he asks, why are certain groups uh, uh, more threatening than others to the state? And he points out something really interesting, which is in India, groups that are organized along religious lines are viewed as existentially threatening. So Kashmir, uh, to a slightly lesser degree, Sikh insurgents in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, whereas ethno-linguistic groups like those in Northeast India are not considered existentially threatening. They're sort of, they're, the government is able to sort of deal with them. In Pakistan, it's exactly the opposite, right? So groups that are organized along religious lines like the, like the Taliban are not considered uh, existentially threatening. Whereas groups that are organized along ethno-linguistic lines, like say the insurgency in Balochistan, are considered a big threat to the state. And the point that he makes is this has to do with the ideology and history of the state. Um, in India, uh, religious, uh, religious separatism is what broke up the continent to, in, in their eyes, right? So to the Indian state, the idea of a Muslim majority group seeking independence for a Muslim majority region, especially if it's backed by Pakistan, sort of taps into the trauma of, of partition and sort of reminds them again, uh, you know, they, they view it as existentially threatening because that has had this gigantic effect uh, on the security of India. Whereas ethno-linguistic insurgency, er, insurgencies, there's no ethno-linguistic majority group in India, right? There's, there's all of these small groups and sort of diversity on ethno-linguistic grounds is totally normal in the functioning of Indian politics and has always been like that because it's this incredibly multicultural uh, subcontinent country. In Pakistan, it's exactly the opposite, right? So the formation of Pakistan, religion is what everyone had in common, whereas ethno-linguistic differences are what has divided the state, right? The 1971 war, Bengal for ethno-linguistic differences breaks off of the rest of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And so they look at other ethno-linguistic movements like in Balochistan and see that as existentially threatening in a way that they don't really see the Taliban as existentially threatening because it's it's just another sort of uh, uh, religious extremist group that they can sort of treat as a normal part of Pakistani politics. Mm -hmm. So all that is to say that it's, it's sort of 
there's a sort of ideology of the state or an idea of what the state is about. Mm. And it's when it's sort of, when a group is more threatening to that, they're a lot more likely to be viewed as extremist uh, than a group that that sort of is within the normal bounds of, of politics and diversity within the country. How about for the other governments in the region like Myanmar and, uh, and Sri Lanka, does that also hold true? Yeah, so a good example in, in Myanmar is the there are, uh, you see the, so the, in the mountains of Myanmar, there are all of these different ethnic tribes. You have a majority region or majorities, uh, ethnic majority that lives on the plain, Burman people. And then you have all of these uh, hill, hill regions that are a lot more sparsely populated. Those groups aren't viewed as existentially threatening because it's just a part of the sort of broader empire. Whereas, uh, the group that has been viewed as, as as a real, real threat to the government has been democracy movement, right? So there's been a big protest and insurgency movement throughout uh, throughout the re- uh, uh, throughout the history of Myanmar, but especially since since 1988 uh, was the big, big movement um, that is viewed by the military government as a sort of uh, as the primary threat. And one of the things that you uh, that's sort of evidence of this sort of dual treatment is that the one ethnic militia movement that has collaborated with the democracy movement, which is the Karen groups uh, in the in the east of the country, that is viewed as they they have never been able to sign a ceasefire with the government. The government has sort of always treated them as a as an enemy because they collaborated with the uh, with the democracy movement and sort of they found common ground there. So. Uh, they are they're viewed very differently. Um, Sri Lanka, it, you know, I, I said separatist movements generally aren't as threatening, or like you can sometimes find common ground more easily. Uh, it's harder to do that when Tamils are 15-20% of the population of Sri Lanka, right? That, that kind of breakaway would be uh, incredibly uh, threatening to the, to the Sri Lankan majority government especially because Tamils, uh, there are so many Tamils across the Straits in India um, that, you know, early in the movement, it was like, there, there was a lot of suspicion of Indian involvement uh, in, but more generally, there's this fear that, uh, you know, compared to Tamils more generally, the Sinhalese, majority of Sri Lanka is actually the minority because there's all of these Tamils on the other side of the um, the other side of the street. So there you get this pattern over and over of certain for for sort of ideological and historical reasons, certain groups are sort of seen as more threatening, seen as more extremist than others, regardless of sort of their their sort of negotiating positions at, or attack profile, you know, violence profiles, it's much more about sort of what the basis of the movement in the first place is, is based on. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so trying to, obviously the, the different countries have dealt with this in different ways, depending upon how they, how they see it, but let's move the conversation now to war termination and trying to somehow end the insurgency. Um, what's the, you know, what, what are the key takeaways in terms of uh, war termination in terms of the insurgencies for, for, this, uh, for these regions? So there have been more or less government 
victories. Uh, as I said, there's uh, the Sri Lankan Tamil civil war. They, you know, Sri Lanka previously put down a, a, the communist uh, JVP before that. Um, you know, the the government has the government of India has basically successfully put down uh, a Sikh insurgency and. To a lesser degree, the Maoist insurgency is still going, but it's at a much, much reduced capacity at this point. Um, there, there have been sort of traditional counterinsurgency wins, uh, as as I've mentioned, uh, that have looked a lot like our sort of best practices in counterinsurgency, maybe with a little bit of mix of uh, uh, of pretty brutal tactics. Uh, so the the Sri Lankan civil war famously at the end was was really quite brutal um the 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 kinds of uh manhandling of populations there's uh you know there there are still ongoing human rights debates uh surrounding the end of that war um that uh that got quite bad um but what's really interesting as i said is is not actually the sort of outright government wins but the sort of halfway measures that have happened there have been a few cases where there's been a formal peace agreement where the the rebels have sort of disarmed in exchange for something so uh the in in northeast india there was one one of the 10 separatist movements successfully uh became a political party disarmed and got uh, some autonomy concessions for the state, some concessions on taxes and some concessions on sort of home rule. Um, that that definitely happens. What much more often happens, though, is these sort of long-term ceasefire agreements. So even in the midst of a long war, often governments are able to sort of offer, uh, the the rebels can sort of operate in place, remain armed, uh, continue to, as I said, continue to tax population, continue to sort of operate, even sort of play roles in local politics in a, in a sort of informal way. Um, but as long as they don't attack government forces and the government can sort of use that to pull, to draw down their commitments there and redistribute them elsewhere. And it's not a coincidence then when the timing of these, these sorts of drawdowns have happened. So in Myanmar, famously, the government in 1988 is facing this massive democracy movement, their head of uh, intelligence initiates a big program to sign ceasefires with all of these ethnic militias because they wanna take off the table this other conflict that's happening so that they can dedicate all of their resources toward putting down the democracy movement. Similarly, uh, in, the, in the 1990s in, in Nagaland where I've worked, the, um, the government is much more concerned with Kashmir at that moment there, but they're facing this, this insurgency in, in Nagaland. And so in 97, they offer uh, a pretty substantial uh, ceasefire to all of the, the Naga armed groups, right? They don't, they don't do it selectively based on sort of whether the groups are extremists or not. They just say, can we just end this? You sit in place and, you know, and we'll, we'll agree to sort of disagree for now uh, to live and let live for now. Um, and so it's, it's happened quite quite frequently that uh, that these movements sort of gets get quieted or that the conflicts get quieted, but the groups are still there. They're still operating and they're still playing a big role in local politics. Uh, they just sort of are doing it quietly. This and again, this this seems like a pretty uh, 
unusual thing, but I actually, I looked across uh, civil wars across the world in one of my papers, uh, and I found this actually quite commonly. So in cases that seem unrelated to us, uh, actually look quite similar. So for example, this is not that unlike the frozen conflicts of the post-Soviet region. So uh, after the Georgian civil war in 91, uh, there was there was this sort of, okay, the government's gonna uh, withdraw forces from South Ossetia, let it operate semi-autonomously, but not formally, not make any kind of major concession, just sort of freeze the conflict in place. Uh, or honestly, the the, the situation uh, in in Israel Palestine over the last uh, uh, over the last thirty years, right since the since the first intifada, has been this sort of long periods of we're going to informally draw back, uh, let you continue to operate, but no one needs to disarm, no sort of formal uh, status agreement needs to be signed. Um, but you, you see this all over the world. There's, uh, you know, cases in Senegal and other uh, a number of other places that, that I've looked at. What, what's interesting is that I have, in that paper, I was kind of trying to take the entire scope of civil wars since 1945 and see where this has happened and when. The two big takeaways are it happens basically only in, in separatist conflicts. And it happens... It has happened much more since the end of the Civil War. Basically, it's, it's right the, the end of the Cold War. Um, that it was actually quite rare before then, in large part because many of the the insurgencies around the world were sort of being fed by the superpowers. Right. Uh, uh, whereas that's really not the case anymore, and no one cares if you know if if uh, these groups sort of settle. Uh, with the government for a period, they're able to accomplish a lot of their sort of smaller goals uh, in the meantime. Uh, that's, yeah, in fact, you see a lot of them happen right at the, the end of the Cold War. Is is there also, is the, um, a contributing factor for India geography? And what I mean by that is, you know, not, not just okay, Kashmir matters more to them than Nagaland, but also mm. the fact that they're a very big country, very big population, yes. and Nagaland, and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't really sit astride, you know, economic or, or vital national um, things that would keep the Indians having to deal with this with this problem? Yeah, so I definitely think that's part of what's going on. Although one of the ironies is that India has two disputed border regions with China. One of them's in Kashmir. The other is in Arunachal Pradesh, which is uh, actually the large portions of that territory are run by Naga armed groups are sort of uh, home to a lot of uh, Naga armed groups. And so in terms of national security, that also is in the eye of the beholder, right? If mm -hmm. yes, sort of India views Pakistan as its primary antagonist, uh, throughout this whole period. And therefore Kashmir is sort of this sort of central identifying conflict. But at the same time, you can see cases where China might be more threatening and suddenly Nagaland becomes, becomes a bigger deal. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely true that these ri international rivalries have, um, have sparked a lot of these conflicts or fed a lot of these conflicts. So, in Northeast India, for example, basically all of the groups that were operating in the 1960s and 70s got funding from the PLA uh, directly. That 
is not true, basically hasn't been true since the death of Mao. Uh, it, you might have some informal relationships, but there's the, the very ironic uh, reality of in Nagaland of there are a whole bunch of groups with socialist in their names that also have Christian as their primary sort of identifier. So the, the motto of the National Socialist Council of Nagaland is Nagaland for Christ. Um, so, and, and that shows you there's a certain element of they are parroting the language of the PLA in order to get support in the, in the 70s and 80s, right. but they don't take any of it seriously. Um, there's also, yeah, there, Manipur, there's a group that calls themselves the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. Uh, they haven't had any direct connection, as far as I can tell, uh, to Beijing for, uh, for decades. So there's, so there's that aspect of it, too. There's, there's clearly... Uh, you know, regional rivals do do sort of feed insurgencies when it's useful to them, or sort of, you know, we'll we'll fund an armed group just to have a representative in the region. Um, but it's it arguably doesn't play a huge role in South Asia, aside from Kashmir as the the sort of obvious example. Uh, the the Taliban obviously crosses national boundaries too, and that's that's a very complex set of relationships, but. Mm. So when these, when, you know, the government offers some type of, uh, of deal, um, not, a, not a strict war termination as we would define it, but at least a, as you said, a live and let live agreement, what happens to a lot of the members of these groups? Do they just simply stop fighting? Do they go off and become criminals? Like how, what, what usually happens? So one of the really striking things is that usually these ceasefires don't involve a massive demobilization of any kind. Uh, so in the case of, of Naga insurgencies, for example, uh, there, there was a, a approximate doubling of their manpower in the few years after the 1997 ceasefire. Um, they've become a much more sort of uh, a bigger part of life, right? The, the rebels have, because they're in ceasefire with the government, they've come out of the hills or come out of the, the woods at least and into the cities. They, they operate a lot more openly now. Um, that doesn't mean that they can't play political roles. As I said, there's, you know, we, we sometimes think of, oh, arms groups have either they want to overthrow the government or they don't have really any political role. The, the reality is they, they can play a lot of political roles, right? They can, uh, they can sort of influence local policy. They can sort of de facto run local villages or sort of put pressure on, on local chiefs. They can, uh, you know, they can play substantial roles in state policy as well. So uh, a lot of the Northeast Indian states, the sort of ethnic separatist regions will have their own state government, like Nagaland has a state, uh, Manipur is a state. Um, and those governments can be pretty heavily influenced by what uh, leaders of armed groups are asking from them. They can sort of operate as a uh, as an interest group that's also armed. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's not just sort of criminality, although they also, in many places, will tax the populations. They'll sort of run. Uh, they'll they'll tax businesses, they'll do other things to sort of uh, keep up the revenue coming in, and they'll be able to sort of sit in place and profit from some of that. Um, but they still, they're, they're still armed political groups uh, in, in very, in very real sense. Um, 
and as I said, they they still recruit in pretty pretty large numbers in in these cases. Uh, in many cases, they recruit more people than they did back when it was when life was a little harder for rebels. Mm. But but again, the, the I guess the key difference is between say Iraq or Afghanistan or Kashmir is there's no level of violence going on. Is that yeah? So for the most part, yeah. What well, once it, it depends on the place. It depends on the exact. Uh, the exact situation, but it's it's not that different from uh, from the relationship like the Sons of Iraq program, right? So they're they are helping to suppress violence, uh, but doing it in a way that they still have local influence, right? Um, and are still sort of they're semi allied or at least in ceasefire with the government. Um, so there's a level of violence, but it's it's no it's it isn't any higher than a, than say crime. You know, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, famously, yeah, the famously in Sri Lanka, uh, the the Tamil Tigers were quite good at at keeping law and order in their in their territory. Um, So in the north, uh, where the the Tigers, you know, the the Vani is the the region that the the Tigers uh, had their most control over uh, the crime rate, both sort of property crime, petty crime, sexual violence, uh, very noticeably ticked up, at least from the accounts of, of people who lived there um, after the war is over, after the tiger's power was broken, because the tigers were doing such a good job of, of sort of keeping law and order. It was a very particular law and order that supported their, you know, the power of the organization. And they were quite brutal toward their sort of competitors within the Tamil movement. They they rose up during the 80s. They basically some combination of of out recruited and then sort of uh, cracked down upon uh, various other Tamil groups and consolidated the movement. Um, but, you know, the these groups actually can serve public good purposes often for their own purposes Uh, wow um so after you know the 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 interviews you did and and watching this these groups uh, what is it what are the takeaways in terms of fighting an insurgency yeah so a few things i noticed sort of going between uh, my goal in this project was to sort of see what happens within armed organizations uh, pre and post ceasefire. And so, and learn something as a result about what happens when the government cracks down versus sort of lets these groups operate semi-independently, because this is, as I said, this is an option for how you treat armed groups if they're willing hmm. to sort of let live and let live. Um, so the two big takeaways with what happened inside the organization. One is, uh, as I said, the size of the organizations increased uh, during during these ceasefire periods, but the people who came in were the people who would have been deterred by violence, right? Mm -hmm. And so that means the people who come in often don't have the same level of commitment to the group's goals that the leaders might. Right. So you get a lot of people who come into the movement who are very explicit about, oh, yeah, it was too dangerous when things were actually happening. But this seems like a way to serve my community. And it's it's fine. And so those groups, the people who come in might not be super useful once you go back to fighting. Um, And that creates a sort of constituency which sort of reinforces uh, this peacetime uh, agreement. Right. 
The other thing that happens is that people join the groups that are most receptive toward compromise with the government during these periods, right? If the government shows, hey, we're willing to let people, we're willing to let militants operate in relative peace, then people are going to say, I want to join a group that'll help preserve that peace that might actually accomplish some of its goals in that peace, rather than uh, the extremists who might disrupt this good ceasefire that we've got going. And so both of those things sort of create constituencies for keeping this, this ceasefire in place long-term. That, that's Nagaland, you know, they, they offered this, this ceasefire in 1997. It's still going 25 years later uh, because the, uh, the people that have come into the movement and then which groups they've joined have sort of created this, this force behind, uh, behind, preserving, behind preserving the peace. The, the other thing I'll say, so I think those are the, the two big sort of takeaways for how uh, how directly violence and versus ceasefire sort of contribute toward uh, maintaining the peace, right? By 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 doing a ceasefire, you sort of uh, you might institutionalize the militants, but you sort of tame them to to some degree, right? You create these constituencies within militant organizations that are willing to work with the state uh, in various ways. Um, but yeah, I also just spent, you know, I had six months on the ground in, in Northeast India and about six weeks on the ground in, uh, in, in Sri Lanka uh, interviewing and doing surveys. And it was really striking to me, actually, some of the, the sort of conventional wisdom about insurgencies didn't actually make sense uh, once you started to actually talk to people, at least in these, in these regions. So um, one thing is, we, we sometimes think of, of militants as being sort of very committed, the, the sort of rank and file as you would only take up arms if you really believed in a movement. Mm. And I think that's more true when the government is cracking down on armed groups, right? So when, when the government is willing to let these groups operate, actually there are reasons to join that are, that are somewhat mundane that uh, we might say. So for example, I had, uh, this, this kind of fun survey experiment where I interviewed uh, potential recruits of armed organizations. Uh, it actually wasn't me, it was a team of, of surveyors that, that I worked with. Um, but they gave hypothetical armed groups with a whole bunch of different factors that, that varied um, and said, you know, it's kind of marketing for, for, for recruits, right? Would, it, would you join an armed group that looked like this versus this versus this? And you can vary all of the different uh, attributes of the group and see what sorts of things affect their decision-making. And the biggest takeaway by far was that uh, mundane lifestyle factors play a huge role in whether people are, are willing to join, both in interviews and in these surveys. By far the biggest effects were, am I, go am, am I going to have to sleep outside? Uh, am I gonna get a warm meal uh, mm. twice a day, three times a day? Uh, am I going to have to, you know, am I going to get uh, 200 rupees at the end of the week to buy some cigarettes or it's pan, it's, it's a chewed uh, tobacco like uh, leaf uh, in Northeast India, but it's those kind of incredibly mundane uh, lifestyle factors that can, that can actually have a huge effect on whether people are willing to join an armed group. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, when you go into ceasefire with these groups, many more people are willing to join because it's no, you no longer have to sleep outside in the mud mm. to serve your community, right? You can do it 
in a in a tent or in a in a in a you know barracks of some sort. Um, you know, it's it, we talk about we talk about sort of the monetary advantage or the monetary benefits from from insurgency. We're thinking of like diamonds in West Africa, or we're thinking of gold, or we're thinking, but you know, it's to to these uh, to these people, it was it was a lot more un- mundane than that. Um, the other thing is those the abstract causes uh, that we talk about really seem to not have any influence on on ordinary even the most committed of the sort of uh, uh, militants that I was interviewing that you know the as I said the the name of the group uh, the name of some of the groups in, in uh, Nagaland are you know socialist have socialist right in the title uh, I remember uh, interviewing. Uh, for a long time, uh, a young man who had, I guess, no, no longer a young man, he's in his uh, late 30s at the time, uh, but he had served for 20 years in one of the major Naga armed groups. And we were talking about, he, you know, I, we were talking about why he joined and he talked about his local community and how the, the militants were protecting them. And he talked about the cause of independence and how important that was to him. And I asked him, uh, what about socialism? What, what do you think about socialism? And he had to ask for translation several times uh, because he literally did not know what the word meant. He, 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 he repeated, we sort of walked through it and he just didn't, didn't understand. Um, even after, you know, the group does all of this sort of ideological training and it sort of, it modeled itself off of the Chinese PLA. Um, and it just wasn't a piece of anything about it. And the, this has been shown in conflicts around the world. It's not that people don't believe in anything. It's that their their ideology tends to be a lot more pragmatic and local and sort of about their own, their own community um, and about simpler causes uh, than something as abstract as, as socialism. Um, yeah, the, the, the one other piece is uh, extremism. So we it is very fashionable uh to talk about outbidding as uh, in in armed movements that we have this instinct that oh it's a really big problem once you get armed groups operating once you get armed groups especially competing with each other because recruits and finances and everything will flow to the most extreme organization right that if you have ISIS, even AQI looks tame by comparison. If you have, you know, the, the more sort of extremist group is going to look better, look ideologically purer. I found actually very little evidence that there was any appetite for extremism. Um, and especially when the government shows that it's willing to, to sort of work with armed groups, that even among the sort of relative, the, the groups that are willing to operate in, in ceasefire in Northeast India, there was overwhelmingly more support for a more pragmatic approach for, uh, toward the government, especially after these ceasefires had been signed, that people would much rather work and fight for a group that is willing to sort of be pragmatic about what it can achieve and what it can't, and not overly idealistic uh, about, uh, about its goals. Um, so that was really striking to me as well, um, that this sort of, in, in many cases, what you get is the opposite of outbidding uh, between groups, you actually get the sort of underbidding, where every group is trying to look a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit more reasonable in negotiating with the government uh, to position itself for recruits and followers, um, so that it can look like with a more more reasonable 
uh, representative of the community, even as they're threatening violence. No, no, I, I'm, I'm laughing at what you said about the about the mundane reasons, because it, it seems like it's a human trait, you know, because um, we think of these groups as, as the extremists. Like, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting with a memory like, you know, a lot of Marines, we want to be Marines and that means about being a Marine. Yeah. But I remember vividly uh, watching on TV our, um, you know, our post-Cold War military when they all got deployed in 1990 uh, to the Persian Gulf and the whole, you know, the six month lead up before we went and, and, and took down Saddam Hussein. The newspapers are interviewing all these people and they're all saying, I joined for money for college. I never thought I'd be deployed to a foreign land. Yeah. <laughs> and then not, not the other, it was the other story. It's not the Marine Corps. But it was just funny because maybe it's a human trait about you, you join for, for mundane reasons, you know, the, the promise of money for college or, you know, for, to better your situation as opposed to, I want, I believe in the cause of yeah. bringing freedom to the world or whatever. Yeah. And I've presented this work a lot to other political scientists and often their response is, but what about the U S Marines? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> yes. what about, we, we've, you know, can't, by by showing you are the toughest organization, isn't that going to get you the best recruits? And the answer is maybe if you're recruiting from a country of 300 and something million people and you can sort of tailor your image as just the toughest of the toughest of the toughest, you might be able to eke out a, small, a relatively small service yeah. that specializes in that. Uh, sort of organization, but that's not the reality for most armed groups around the world. Even in, uh, even in areas where there's quite strong anti-government sentiment, you probably can't put together too many people who are so committed that they will give up their lives uh, in you know without a thought or sort of, or even if they're willing to give up their lives, sleep on the sleep sleep on the muddy ground for. Uh, for months on end, years on end, uh, especially when you get these really intense, you know, or not uh, when you get the really long running conflicts, right? That, uh, you know, if Naga insurgency has been going on basically off and on for uh, how, uh, since the since the late 1950s at this point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what is that, 65 years? Uh, the The reality is that I think people anticipate a longer uh, shadow of the future uh, mm. in an armed organization than, than in a lot of other conflicts. You know, even if most people don't make it more than five or 10 years, uh, we're still talking about years and we're not talking about, we go out and we fight and we win and then we come back home. Mm. Uh, the reality is you're, you're gonna be doing this for a while probably. No, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Um, so, so I'll throw a, I'll throw a, um, a personal question at you, seeing yeah. as though having been a professor here at the, at the Naval War College, now about to go back to um, civilian academia, political yeah. science, Harvard Wesleyan University. What are your, um, what kind of, um, you know, things did you, uh, biases maybe that you came in with that you've now learned that you can then take back into influencing your research and, uh, and as a political scientist in the future? To be honest, I think that I didn't have strong feelings about the military other than the fact that I worked with a lot of military students uh, when I was a grad student at Columbia. There's uh, there's a um, mm. uh, sort of non-traditional undergrad program there. So we got a lot of former enlisted uh, folks who were going back to, to their bachelors. And my impression was always, hey, these people 
are very hardworking. Uh, they're, they're sort of self-motivated and sort of self-organizing. Uh, I don't think I probably anticipated just the degree of, of self-organizing that students can be. I, uh, I joke that I joked with my uh, uh, colleagues at civilian universities recently about uh, the first day of class, uh, sending out a game plan and coming to, to seminar and the students had organized who was going to answer what questions. <laughs> uh, and they were sort of deferring to each other and sort of working, working the discussion. Uh, that level of organization just does not happen at civilian universities, no matter how well you try to organize. Uh, but no, I think that's that's been the really striking thing uh, in terms of the students. But really, to me, there's there's a big sort of shift when you start when you go from thinking about the world in a political science lens to a strategy lens. Uh, and those are you know they're really two different fields. Strategy is is a sort you know involves aspects of political science, involves aspects of military history, involves aspects of doctrine, but it's none of those things, right? It's 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 a sort of approach for how to think about setting goals in conflict and how to sort of go about winning a conflict. And that's a sort of purpose-built lens that's a that's very different, right? I'm I have all of these abstract questions and have have had to sort of focus so much of my research on how do I frame this as a generalized question that other political scientists are going to feel contributes to a very specific abstract literature along certain lines. That's not the way the, the military works, nor should it, how it should work, right? It should, it, it works in a very practical lens of how do you accomplish certain goals as a, as a country. Um, and so it's been a real, it's been really helpful, uh, to think in terms of what's actually necessary for decision-making uh, at high levels and what might, uh, what might policy and military uh, decision-makers need from political scientists uh, that doesn't look like uh, the things that we find, we find useful. Uh, because honestly, you know, I don't want to offend a lot of political scientists. <laughs> the vast majority of political science research isn't meant to be useful. Right? That's not the that's not the goal of it. It's meant to sort of uh, answer deeper structural questions, and it might have implications down the line. But we're uh, we're often not very good at sort of making those connections. Sort of spending three years around military folks has has helped me, I think, to understand what sorts of uh, what sorts of information might actually inform decisions along the lines. Outstanding. All right. Well, that was that was fascinating and educational. Colby, thank you very much for your time. No, thanks, John. Uh, and we will see everybody next time on Profile of Strategy. Thank you. Thanks.